Hi, everyone. I'm Kyle Dyer, and welcome to Colorado Inside Out on this Friday, April the 14th. There are only three weeks left to go in this legislative session, and well over 300 bills left to be considered. So you would think lawmakers would be in overdrive. But this week, work really slowed down in the House with Republicans stretching out debate on bills. In fact, on Monday, lawmakers didn't wrap up until 11 o'clock at night. This is not the clear sailing the legislature's majority, the Democrats, had hoped for this session. Don't worry, we won't go extra overtime this week on this show. Let's get right to our panel. We have Patty Calhoun, founder and editor of Westward, as well as George Brockler, former DA for the 18th Judicial District and current host of The George Show on KNUS Radio 710. Tyrone Glover, criminal and civil rights attorney here in Denver, and also Chris Work, the managing editor of Denver Business Journal. Thank you all for joining us this week. Starting with the legislature, some are calling this session the Year of Housing, Senate Bill 23, is a huge bill outlining Governor Polis's plan to increase affordable housing statewide. On the opening day of testimony, this bill drew the largest audience so far in the session with nearly 450 people signed up to testify. And Patty, the talk has not stopped. It has not stopped and it is not going to stop until this bill is amended far beyond what it originally looked like or it disappears altogether. In some ways, maybe this was a genius move by Jared Polis to bring the state together because it might be the only issue on which every single person in the state agrees except Polis and the people who are supporting this bill, which appears to be the mayor of Boulder. 28 mayors were, were all asked to sign this letter and she is the only one who did not sign it because municipalities, whether it's Denver, Colorado, where Hancock and the president of the council came out against it, or a rural eastern slope, uh, Eastern Plains, Western Slope Town, mm -hmm. everyone hates this bill, largely because it takes away local control. And this is a state that has always believed in local control of municipal matters. It's not like Grand Junction wants to build the things Denver wants to build, but they want to have the choice. So Polis has already said he's looking at amendments. We'll see what really comes out in the do, end. Do we know what he wants to change, though? What he'll, he would he's like willing to, to. He would like to have people vote for it, I think. So mm. he's going to have to change something. Hmm. And, George, there are so many threats about lawsuits, not just a couple, but years of litigation. I think that's true. I think that this bill is going to make some attorneys rich. I don't know if it's... Tyrone or me, given what we do for the law, but um, there's a good reason for it too. And that is, I talked with our Vada mayor, um, Mark Williams, just this morning. And what he said was, uh, listen, this bill dropped on us, this 106 page behemoth, and nobody ever, never, ever reached out to us ahead of time to say, here's what we're thinking, here are the goals we want to accomplish. You're a stakeholder, help us out with this. They said they were bludgeoned with this bill kind of as it dropped. And so you can imagine why mayors who have largely been entrusted with a certain leadership role over an elected city council who make these hard decisions all the time in an environment much more peaceful usually than the legislature, why they would be up in arms over this. The idea that a house in my neighborhood, maybe next door to me decides, let's go fourplex, let's go sixplex, and I don't have any say in that, that's another thing that's gonna create, I think, litigation opportunities here. Uh, I think it matters that you have the entire Colorado Municipal League, it seems like, lockstep in, in opposition to this. I don't know what changes can be made. My suggestion is let's scrap it, let's go back, let's have that stakeholder meeting, and then we'll move forward next year with something that works. Everybody wants to address uh, affordable housing. Everybody does, just not in a one-size-fits-all approach. Mm -hmm. Tyrone, your thoughts? I think it's a shame that some of the real efforts that lawmakers have made during this session to address uh, affordable housing have been 
overshadowed by SB 23 and all the chatter that it's caused. We've had some, I think, really ambitious bills, uh, you know, some that were successful, some that were not, that addressed uh, just cause, rent control, uh, trying to make rental applications more uh, accessible, as well as revising the content of lease contracts. All of this is to try to make Denver more affordable. We do, our lawmakers are trying, um, but I do think that SB 23 is ultimately a product of us really being in this, this gridlock. And I understand that Colorado and Coloradans and our municipalities want local control, but I think as I've said on this program before, this needed to be addressed yesterday. And I think this move by the governor is you know, a potential unifier ultimately, but it's a bit of a referendum on, hey, Let's get this solved, and let's get this solved soon. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, like you're talking about all the rent provisions and, and bills, that could be more immediate than this plan would be. Exactly. As George was saying, I think, you know, if anything gets through, especially if there isn't the level of local control that we want, there's going to be tied up in litigation for years and years. The stuff that we've seen during this cycle that actually has gone through, I think, will impact uh, Coloradans in the immediate future. I agree with Tyrone. There's another bill in the House right now, House Bill 23-1255, and that's another challenge to local control. What it is doing is it's basically telling local governments you cannot cap your growth in housing. Um, I think that is also going to see legal challenges. I don't understand why lawmakers and even the governor would think that this would be a good approach. Like Patty said, you know, the fabric of Colorado is local control. That rugged individualism, we can decide on our own. We know our area is the best. Colorado's been a home rule state for more than 100 years. That means municipalities can decide that they're a home rule municipality. They pass a charter, rules that govern their local areas. I can understand why local leaders would be upset over the bill. Yes, George? I was going to say one other thing that Chris made me think of this is that there's sort of a schizophrenia that's taken place in this legislature because on the one hand we say when it comes to safe injection sites or these overdose prevention sites, hey, local control is what matters. You guys know what's best. But when it comes to making decisions about residential development, we say you guys can't do this. Let us bureaucrats here in Denver take care of it. It's interesting, especially when you take, for instance, the governor back when he was the congressman for Boulder had actually filed an amicus that brought up all of the things that the mayors and CML and these other groups have been saying. He was in support of that, too, and now it's like, change my mind. Yep. Well, I have to disagree with you there because we can't have safe injection sites unless the state approves them. Denver's already approved it, but you can't, you've got to have enabling legislation in the state. So it's not exactly parallel, even but, though you're the greatest talk show host. In thank Denver. you. Well, that's, that's what some great magazine says, uh, newspaper says. But it, it is true that once the state authorizes it, every municipality would be in a position to right. add it. They would have the right to do yeah. it, yeah. All right, let's talk about something else in the legislature right now. Um, another gun violence prevention bill is making its way. This one has to do with banning ghost guns. But still, George, there is nothing talked about this bill that would potentially ban assault weapons. Well, when you have the governor of the state of Colorado coming out and saying he's, he's dubious about that kind of a bill, I can see why they would either try to save that for the end and jam it in or abandon it altogether in, in exchange for trying to get some of these other things done. Listen, the ghost gun thing, I don't see how you can oppose this. We have all said, Republicans, Dems, unaffiliated, we want to keep guns out of the wrong hands. And you can't do that if you're sitting at home 3D printing out your gun. There's no background check for that. There's nothing to keep that in check. The disappointment for me about this bill is, once again, it takes a very soft approach to offenders. So if you get this gun 
that you shouldn't have and you end up getting caught with it, even if you commit a crime with it, it's just a misdemeanor. And I say just a probation eligible misdemeanor. And even if you do it again and get convicted, it's just a felony, a probation eligible felony. If we were serious about gun violence, if we were serious about addressing people who misuse firearms, we would do this, but we'd build in some mandatory time. You commit a crime with a gun, you will go to prison for X number of years, period, end of sentence. But we're not doing that here. In my view, I think similar to what we've seen with drugs, rather than penalize the end user, we need to be penalizing the folks that are shipping uh, these kits without serial numbers into our state. Um, the 3D manufacturer, you know, the 3D printer manufacturers who have these uh, this type of technology um, that is so easily uh, adaptable and, and hackable to be able to make these types of guns. I think we need to go after the people who are supplying these types of things, not so much the, the end users. I think felonizing uh, people who are in possession is just going to, you know, similar to what we saw with drugs, increase our prison population. We need to go out after the people who are proliferating uh, these types of um, kits and these types of weapons in our state. And I think that it is, you know, it's, it's a bit of low-hanging fruit, right? And so what we're seeing is lawmakers walking back what I think were some of the more ambitious pieces of some of this legislation because, you know, frankly, you don't have a big gun manufacturing lobby um, to answer to if you ban uh, ghost guns. You know, Polis has said he supports this ban. I imagine it's going to go through. What I find interesting is his position on other gun laws. I've been following um, Senate Bill 23-168, which was approved by both chambers. That's the bill that says, you know, victims of gun violence harm can go ahead and sue manufacturers and even sellers. Um, what had passed all the way through was that law, that these um, industry folks, the gun makers, the gun sellers, you know, would have to adhere to a code of conduct that was specific to their industry. Apparently in the last hour, or last final hours of putting together the amendments, Polis came in and he said, yeah, let's do something else. And rather than adhering to this code of conduct, these uh, gun to industry folks are going to have to adhere to the Colorado uh, Consumer Protection Act, like most businesses do. And it is not lost that we're still talking about all this with the 24th year from the Columbine shooting next Thursday, April the 20th, Patty. You remember that day? I do, like it was yesterday. Of course, really incredible. And there had been school shootings before, but nothing hit literally as close to home around the country because these were not your stereotypical perps. You know, these were affluent kids in an affluent town, and it just shocked everyone. But to think about how far we've come since then, and I'm not saying in a good way, when the shooting was announced, if you just read the crawl in Louisville, people thought it was Colorado, not Louisville, Kentucky, mm -hmm. because the assumption is now it is going to happen, it is going to happen again. So I think the ghost gun bill will pass. It's a good start. We've seen some other good legislation. I don't think we're going to see the assault weapon bill go through this time, but we might. Mm -hmm. uh, but in general, anything we can do to understand what is making this happen and to stop it. You can't stop it entirely, but you can certainly make guns harder to get. Mm -hmm. I just think the great irony of, of this being the Columbine anniversary is that all these bills we've talked about would have had no impact on Columbine. Three-day waiting period, age of purchase, ghost guns, suing gun manufacturers, red flag, not a single one of those bills would have prevented Columbine. That's telling. But awareness, maybe that's what would make the difference. Would the parents have paid more attention? No.
Um, that's my opinion, having been in that case, no. Hmm. All right, now let's uh, shift and talk about the start of runoff election season. <laughs> Here is a shout out to my neighborhood, Larry, for hosting on Tuesday night the very first runoff debate between the final contenders for the mayor's job, Kelly Bruff and Mike Johnson, and then Wednesday night, the Denver Metro Chamber hosted one as well. So now it's picking up. There are going to be uh, a lot of these debates and forums. The, the philosophical rubber is still yet to meet the road. We really don't necessarily know where uh, these two candidates stand in, in opposition to each other, and I think that that's really what voters are looking for. They want to know really what is the difference between Mike Johnson and Kelly Bruff. I mean, if you look at the hot button topic of homelessness, right, we know that uh, both of them are, you know, forced or sanctuary type sites or sanctioning sites. I think Mike Johnson is, is for the tiny homes. But then you sort of have these diverging views that don't make a whole lot of sense where uh, Kelly Bruff is, is not for the sweeps but is for arresting people and, and Mike Johnson is for putting everyone in these tiny homes but is saying that he, he wouldn't arrest folks. So it's just really unclear, I think, at this point, you know, where they're going to shake out and where they're going to differentiate each other. And also, I think, you know, people seeing this as kind of a referendum on uh, some of the more progressive candidates saying that this was a real shift to more uh, moderate uh, liberals. Um, I think the city council arguably went the opposite way, right? You know, they actually went more to the left. And which of these candidates is going to be able to work uh, more solidly uh, across the aisle from, you know, folks like uh, C. DeBaca and um, Sarah Parity, you know, mm -hmm. who was actually endorsed by the Democratic Socialists of America. So mm -hmm. um, it's going to be a very interesting mayoral cycle. Mm-hmm. And Chris, the, the event I went to on Tuesday, a lot of the neighbors stood up and were asking questions. Well, what are you two candidates going to do about the Park Hill Golf Course that is still such a talker? Sure. Well, in the election, um, voters voted down the lifting of a conservation easement on that golf course. That would have allowed it to be turned into a park and more housing. Um, you know, Westside hasn't really spoken very publicly to any of the media just quite yet. It was interesting, both candidates came out and said, we'll make sure it's a park, which I think is going to be very challenging when you have a private landowner now who's not really happy about the outcome of the election. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. You know, as to the Park Hill issue, um, I did hear that there was a flyer floating around that they were closing down the area to people to use. Patty has said she thinks it's a joke. I'm not sure, but um, the unfortunate thing about the Park Hill decision is that this proposal coming forward was going to put up housing at a time that we need housing so badly. You know, if it goes back to an 18-hole golf course that uses quite a lot of water at a time when Colorado is in a drought, you know, I don't know that we've really come up with the greatest solution. But there still is that legal issue. There's an easement on that property, right? Yes. I mean, it is. So... So it could still be a golf course if Westside wanted to build a golf course. Mm -hmm. Or if they want to sell it to the city of Colorado, I mean, to the city of Denver. But they paid $24 million for that property. We have to remember that. And then they've paid countless additional maybe millions on plans, on campaigns. I mean, they've had several campaigns to get people to vote their way. So I don't think they're going to be in a very good mood to bargain right now. I do think in some ways people are making jokes out there, like someone put a sign up, future home of In-N-Out Burger. <laughs> I don't think the top golf threat was a joke, but I think the In-N-Out Burger was one of them. Uh, anyway, so we'll see what happens there. It's going to take a lot of money to buy it. I'll say that. Mm -hmm. uh, but the debate last night was fascinating because you had people actually be able to talk for two minutes. And in two minutes, you can say a lot more 
than one minute, especially when Mike Johnson is playing the stats, like 86% of the people offered the choice to leave the streets and go into a tiny home would, or would go into housing. Now, what happens to that other 16%, if that stat is correct? That's where you get the differentiation between mm -hmm. who would arrest, who would move them along, mm -hmm. and we'll hear a lot more about that in the mm -hmm. next few days. It is so great, and I feel like they're kind of like, wait, I get to talk more than 30 seconds? I can tell a joke? I, yeah. yeah. Or yeah. not. <laughs> right. That was a warning. I got it. Thank mm -hmm. you. Um, this is a fascinating race for me because I know both these people. I've had experience with them before. They're both incredibly smart, articulate, experienced. They do come from one part of the political spectrum that isn't as progressive. But there's going to be a moment coming up here pretty quickly. And maybe we're starting to see it with some of the stuff that's being said just subtly. And that is there's going to be a moment where each one of their advisors is going to pull them aside and say, do you want to be the nice person that lost to Mayor Bruff or lost to Mayor Johnson? Or do you want to be the mayor? And those gloves are going to slide off. And at some point, we're going to get to see some real slicing and dicing and some sharp elbows in politics. And I think that's regrettable because both of these people are genuinely good people who've done a lot of good things for the city. Um, but I think that's what's coming for us. I would say the benefit of that is we need to know the distinctions. And the mm -hmm. distinctions right now are Johnson's got a super detailed plan that can be picked apart. Kelly's getting there with some of her details. I think we need something like that to help distinguish them because right now I don't know what the big distinctions are. On Thursday, jury selection started in the $1.6 billion lawsuit between Denver-based Dominion Voting Systems and Fox News. We have two journalists here and two lawyers, so let's get started. Chris, I'll start with you. You're a newspaper editor. You know what you can and cannot print. Yeah, I mean, this whole case is very sobering. Um, I recently participated in a defamation uh, seminar. It was taught by Steve Zansberg, who is the very well-known First Amendment attorney, and it was very sobering as a journalist. I think there's a huge responsibility as a journalist because the information you're disseminating has to be factual. It has to be true. So to learn this about Fox News um, is concerning. And at the same time, I question, does anybody really think Fox News is a news outlet or are they more entertainment? I'm not quite sure. But this case does have Colorado implications. It's a Colorado company. Um, there are some media uh, people facing some lawsuits here in Colorado as well. So it'll be interesting to watch the Dominion case and see how it impacts Colorado. People around the country are watching, but here we have a vested interest in this, which is Dominion employees, and not just Dominion employees, but election workers, because of the election deniers, because of the falsehoods promoted by Fox, they've been threatened, mm -hmm. they've had to move, they've had to have security protection. So there are ramifications beyond just ratings for Fox. Um, and if Fox is entertainment, it has a, a higher a burden of proof to uh, defend itself because you are protected as a journalist if you do not know that you are with what you are putting out there as a falsehood. But in the depositions, you saw Fox knew very well that they were putting guests on that were lying or maybe believed their lies, but Fox knew they were lies. So they don't have that protection. If you happen to know that George makes up what he's about to say and it's not true, we could be sued too. George, don't. <laughs> I was going to say Tyrone just whispered to me the election was stolen, but that would be <laughs> false. And I, uh, I'm not saying that with any malice. And that's really what this trial comes down to. I, I, I'm excited to see jury selection start. Just from a trial attorney standpoint, I am interested to see how they find 12 plus, plus 12 people, 12 primary and 12 alternate jurors, 
who can sit there and be fair on this case. There's nobody out there that has not heard of Fox News unless you've been trapped in a cave somewhere. I, I was interested by the fact that the judge said that neither party could ask any of the prospective jurors whether or not they believe the election was stolen. And I got to tell you, regardless of the side of the case I would be on, I'd want to know that mm -hmm. if this is the information that is, uh, that is the basis for this suit. I think the other thing that's interesting is based on the court rulings, this isn't about the falsity of the claims. That thing's been settled. We are talking really mm -hmm. only about malice. And then ultimately, if we get past that damages, this is going to be a hoo-hoo of Fox News in the stand on a daily basis. This thing is going to make doing talk radio so easy. Thank you, Fox. <laughs> As a civil litigator, I'm nerding out a bit on the discovery fights and mm. sort of the sort of 11th hour discovery yes. fight. You know, we have you know the attorneys about to, to pick a jury, potentially opening on Monday, and really at the 11th hour, uh, the judge orders sanctions on Fox News um, and appoints an independent attorney investigator to come in to see if they've misled the court, um, if they've hid evidence. So they're literally going to be trying this case, you know, cross-examining, uh, directing witnesses, and in the backdrop, um, a major, major hammer could drop on the Fox News side. I'm just sorry the case was filed in Delaware, because think how much fun it would be oh, yeah. to have this, yeah. to have Rupert Murdoch coming into town, to have Sean Hannity coming into town. It w it's going to be full. We'll all be watching, but it'd be nice if we're here. We will be watching us, for sure. All right, let's head into our lightning round now, where each panelist will go down the line, first talk about something that wasn't so great this week. And then we'll finish on a happy note, something that's positive. Patty, I'll start with you. What, what was a disappointment for you? Well, the Roaring Fork School District had to have a hearing on Wednesday night to discuss why they had Border Patrol people at their job fair without kind of telling the Latino, the largely Latino population, school population, that they would be coming. They already had a policy, a safe haven policy on file, and these kids were freaked out. This was Glenwood Springs High School. Right, Roaring Fork fair. School District. So, like, it was just another booth at the job fair for the kids. Right, and they got, and some of them took selfies with the Border Patrol and other people hid. Wow, okay, George. This one's gonna be a little lighter. I was fortunate enough to get to take my son to uh, Rocky's home opener. Uh, they won, won nothing, uh, pretty good performance, but we have already figured out a way to be in last place and we're only 13 games into the season and it just makes you feel like, are we ever going to flirt with success again? And I'm looking at you, Mr. Monfort. Okay. <laughs> All right, something uh, a little less threatening. <laughs> well, I'm going to depart from the law and actually talk about health care because it just seems like we've been just getting a, a barrage of, of bad news on that front. Uh, a recent report coming up saying that there's a rising maternal, maternal death rate here in Colorado. Um, we have lawmakers scrambling to try to deal with uh, the crippling uh, uh, debt that's coming from medical bills. And then we also have this national judicial assault on reproductive rights. Um, it's not looking good, and, and we need to turn it around. Mm -hmm. Chris? Well, mine's a little more personal. Okay. I made the mistake of entering my information in an online form uh, looking at mortgage rates. I put in my email and my phone number. What ensued was an avalanche of phone calls, texts, emails, and I listed my phone on the donotcall.gov site. It still doesn't work. I have had just untold amounts of calls and it's at first I was just annoyed now it's disruptive to my business so yeah yeah I, what, I get those calls too and we've all signed up all right let's end on something positive Patty to counter the Rockies issue the Nuggets and DU Gymnastics in the finals yes and AFS 
And the DU girls are always, always so strong. Yeah. Uh, a little personal and then we'll go a bigger one. Personally, the premier publication in this hemisphere of the planet has <laughs> mistakenly awarded me best talk show host. I don't know how that happened. There's an investigation looking into that. <laughs> On a broader issue, I want to give a shout out to John and Maria Castillo, who are the parents of Hero Kendra Castillo for an event, a horrible event that we're about to celebrate the fourth and celebrates the wrong word, commemorate the fourth Mark. anniversary of. But they have, for no monetary value at all, for no personal glory at all, has spent a considerable amount of time, including in a courtroom this week, fighting for transparency, for information that could make a difference in the decisions that parents and school boards and schools make to keep our kids safe. And I'm just, I'm just proud that there are folks out there that will continue to push forward to try to make things better. Yep. And I'll do a... Uh one local and one national, starting with the local. Uh, my office is in, uh, in the Rhino Five Points uh, area, and just, I think, today or yesterday, they announced uh, Denver Walls, uh, which is going to be a big uh, mural festival, but it's going to be all uh, women-led, all women muralists, and it's going to be a great, amazing showcase coming up this fall uh, in September. Hopefully, we still have good weather. Mm -hmm. And then nationally, I'd like to just recognize that the, the second of the two uh, black lawmakers in Tennessee, uh, Justin Pearson, was reinstated just recently. Mm -hmm. And so that's something to celebrate, I think, a victory for, for the people of Tennessee and for the people of this country. Mm -hmm. Well, at a time when we are so divided over public safety and gun laws and the Second Amendment, um, I want to tell you about an entrepreneur who has come up with what he thinks is a solution. It is called a smart gun, and uh, it just went on sale today. It is a handgun that ha uses biometric technology, uh, fingerprints, and also facial recognition. So the gun, once it's programmed, recognizes a person through their face or their fingerprints um, and recognizes the owner and only operates with that owner. You can set the gun down, no one else can use it, not a child, not a criminal, no one else, he picks it up and it's, and it's ready for him. It's, it's a great solution for those who feel like they need that for home protection but maybe have children in the house. Um, our reporter Nikki Wentland did the story, it's on the Denver Business Journal so you can check it out. Interesting, okay, thank you. Uh, and lastly this week we want to send our love to our colleague Eric Sonderman and his family. His 95-year-old mother, Marion Sonderman, passed away last weekend and was laid to rest on Thursday. Marion lived a very full life, which began as a child in Holocaust Germany. Marion was a very proud citizen of this country and our state and raised a wonderful family here in Colorado. Marion was an exceptional woman, and we feel here that her son is quite exceptional as well. Our thoughts are with Eric and his family. Thank you. Thank you for watching. And aside from catching this show on, here on PBS, you can watch on PBS12.org or YouTube anytime. But you can also listen to Colorado Inside Out on Apple, Apple Podcasts and also Spotify. So check us out there. I'm Kyle Dyer. I will see you here next week here on PBS12. Take care.